0: Well, let's turn to the Scriptures. And we come today to Galatians, um, chapter 4. And we're going to pick up uh, at at chapter chapter 4 and verse 8. And really, by the end of the chapter, we reach the end of a section. um, Before Paul goes on to explain how to live in Christian freedom, Paul is telling uh, the Galatian Christians again and again, don't go back into slavery. Why on earth, after having freedom in Christ, would you want to go back um, to, the, to the slavery of, of do's and don'ts? i have have my um, laptop. Oh, no, we're going to have reading first, of course. And then, once we get... So, Paul today is getting... It's kind of three final arguments. Or three final pleas. Um, don't go back into... Don't go back into slavery. And then... Um, We've got a visiting speaker, we've got um, Steve Bird next week, and then we'll get into these uh, uh, final two chapters. How, how then do we live uh, freedom in Christ? So we're going to pick up um, verse 8. And Paul says this, "Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you're turning back to those weak and miserable forces?" Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, You didn't treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. And have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us. So that you may have zeal for them. It's fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, not just when I'm with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone, because I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born uh, according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. And now Hagar stands from Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem, because she's in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written: "Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child, break forth and cry aloud, You who are never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband." Now, brothers and sisters. You, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It's the same now. But what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance of the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Let's pray, just let's ask God to open our eyes to his word. Father God, this is your inspired word, inspired and superintended by the work of your Holy Spirit. We ask for the working of your Holy Spirit this morning to open our eyes, give us understanding. Understanding in our minds, understanding in our hearts to grasp what you're saying to us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Galatians carrying on get, getting the gospel right. As evangelicals, we talk about having a, a, a personal relationship with God. Do you remember, at least when I was at university, that's what we talked about. We talked about having a, 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 a personal relationship with God. How is it personal? Well, it's personal in the sense that the Holy Spirit comes and, and lives within us uh, and makes us children of God. It's personal because the Holy Spirit comes and reassures us um, that God is our Father. We saw that last time or the time before. And the Holy Spirit within us enables us to cry out, Abba, Father, and bring to him um, our needs, our concerns, uh, as we would to a loved father, a trusted father. So we talk about that. We talk about that as evangelical Christians, and um, we offer people that in our witnessing, a personal relationship with God. But it's all too easy to slip away from a personal relationship with God into, in, into going through the motions, into kind of mere formalisms, trusting that just by going through the, the motions, somehow that will make us right and keep us right with God. If I just turn up on Sunday morning, or just turn up on the the, the occasional Sunday morning, i Uh, I'll be right with God. My name's still on the membership list. I'm uh, I'm right with God. And sometimes you might not think that it's such a big deal to kind of slip away from the living and personal relationship with God into a relationship which is um, formal. But Paul says it's a thing of the utmost seriousness. It's actually not a minor slip. It's going back into slavery and here are kind of three arguments, three contrasts that Paul brings us to. Call us, please, people. Don't go back into slavery. One is the contrast between gospel faith and worldly religion. One is a co- contrast between good gospel ministry and bad gospel ministry. And the other one is that illustration at the end between whether we're children of promise or whether we're children of the flesh, children of, a, of the slave woman. And let's just kind of look at them as, as, as quickly as we can in turn. Paul says, when you didn't know God, you were slaves by nature to those... Uh, sorry, you were slaves to those who by nature uh, are, are not God. So the, the Galatians used to worship idols. It, I don't know whether you remember, but when uh, Barnabas and Paul were in Lystra, uh, the people thought they were gods. They thought they were Zeus and Hermes. Um, and Paul says, you used to worship these gods. We recognize that they're by nature, they're not gods. We recognize they don't really exist. Um, Zeus doesn't really exist. Hermes doesn't really exist and all those other gods um, you worshipped. But whatever you worship enslaves you. As, as he says in Romans, don't you know when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, your slaves are the one you obey." As soon as you worship something, you, you kind of become its slaves. I think that's one of the unique things about Christianity is you worship God and he brings you freedom. I think everything, every other kind of worship is a, is a worship that takes you back into slavery. So they were enslaved when they worshipped Zeus or, or, or Hermes or, or all of them together because there's no genu- genuine relationship, there's no genuine salvation, there's no rightness with God, there's no genuine obedience, in other words, there's no change in the, in the worshipper and the people. And there's no genuine assurance. There's no way of knowing when you've done enough. There was just the hamster wheel of continued trying to do enough and hoping you were right by Zeus or Hermes or, who, or whoever it was. But now Paul says, they, they know God. Isn't that an astonishing statement? Or rather, they are known by God. Isn't that an even more astonishing statement? This morning... As a Christian, you know God, and you are known by God. You have been introduced to him. So God has broken through that uh, salvation barrier by sending Jesus to die on the cross. He's broken through that relationship barrier by sending his Holy Spirit uh, to live within you. He's broken through that obedience barrier because the Holy Spirit uh, empowers you from within, and it uh, creates a real heart change. And he's broken that assurance barrier because the Holy Spirit speaks to you that you're a child of God. But actually, the more important thing, not simply that they know God, but they're known by God. Now, those two things are always going to go together. You can't know God other than through Christ. But if in some way you you did, it would still just be half a relationship and in some way it would be the poorer half of the relationship the, the greater miracle is that God knows you and I know in the Bible is a very intimate word uh, in, um, in the old King James translation you get something like this in Genesis 4 uh, verse 1 Adam knew Eve his wife and she conceived no in the, in the King James version was, was a word used of um, Adam and Eve um, having children So knowing the Bible is always uh, something more than just a kind of intellectual knowledge. God knows you. God knows you in the sense that you're on the guest list for his house. God knows you in in the sense that your number comes up on his phone when you call him. If I can use that as a picture. But God knows you most fundamentally in the sense that he has chosen you for a relationship with him. He knows you means that he has set his love upon you. And he knew you when his son died and counted that death as yours. And I think it's fair to say that God knows you in a conceiving kind of way. You have been born of God and he is your father. So Paul says to them, why on earth would you want to be in, enslaved again? Why on earth would you want to be enslaved again? And he says to them, and this is probably, I would think, quite shocking to them, that, that to pick up these Jewish extras, these special days, special seasons, and special months, a reliance on the law of Moses to keep you right with God is as bad as going back to paganism. Might as well go back to Zeus and Apollo. So beware things that are labelled as, uh, as special. I remember going with Nathan. Where is he? He's there. Uh, I, I think it was Nathan. It might have been Sam. We went to a visit to a, uh, um, with the school to a, to a church. Um, you're going to feature in this sermon again. So apologies. Okay, it's, just, uh, it's got him worried now. Um, I remember going to a, a church visit with the school and... Um, not a local church here in, where we used to live. Uh, and the lady minister saying, um, you know, of course, when, when Christianity started, there were kind of like, there were no buildings and, uh, and so on. And then she said, uh, as time went on, they, they found a special place to meet. And of course, the special place we were in had kind of special windows uh, and special features. And then the, uh, they said that they had a special table where they would do communion. And then they appointed special people who, who wore special clothes. And I just ask you to beware special. We had a joke on, um, at Elders on Tuesday morning about somebody saying, where is the, where is the box? Uh, where is the special box for electing deacons? And, um, uh, of course, it's, it's not a special box. It's just a box, isn't it? You know, but we did joke we could go and consecrate a new one You know, if we needed one. It's just... Um, um, you know, we can pray over it and lay hands on it. Um, and of course, just silly, isn't it? But in church, we, we kind of create special things. Be, be, beware special. do not need special things, it's only Christ that is special. And when those special things become essential, then we've slipped away from our freedom that we have in Christ, back into slavery. And so Tim Keller says, in this world, there are, there are four kinds of people. And I find this really helpful. And you can have a little think and, uh, and work out which of these you are, and I'll kind of just um, I'll turn up and his notes on this. Four kinds of people. Just see if you can get your head around this. The first people are people who are law-obeying and law-relying. In other words, there are people who, who are relying on law of Moses, relying on doing good moral things to get right with God and to stay right with God. And there are people who rely on that. That's their way of getting right with God, and they're doing it. Or at least they think they're doing it. And he's, he calls them kind of like the new Pharisees. Okay, these people are outwardly, they look really sure about their faith. You know those kind of people. They look really sure about their faith and they, they look like they're really doing it. But actually we find they're a bit sensitive to criticism. So says Keller. And they're devastated when their prayers aren't answered. That's interesting observation, isn't it? He says um, this includes members of other religions, but here I'm thinking mainly of people who go to church. So they're the people who are law obeying and law relying. <coughs> there are some people who would say the same thing that they think it's right, the right way to get right with God, stay right with God is to do the right moral thing, but they're not actually doing it. So they have some kind of religious conscience, but they're not living by it. He says they're more humble than the first group um, because they know they're getting it wrong. But he says they're very afraid of religious topics and in church life, they're on the periphery because of their low spiritual self-esteem. Then he says there's a third group of people. So these people are both relying on the law, but one's doing it, one's not. He says that there's another group of people who are not relying on the law and therefore they're not doing anything particularly moral. Okay, so he's thinking kind of, um, of, <coughs> uh, of secular people. They usually have some kind of vague spirituality. Usually they've invented it uh, for themselves and they choose their own morals. And so they think actually, because they've chosen their own morals, they're doing quite nice by their own standards. Um, So they're quite happy. uh, And quite often they're more tolerant than these other people over here who've been law-reliant. But underneath that, there is still a kind of self-righteousness, which comes from feeling um, superior. That they've chosen their morals and they're doing it. And then he says there's a a fourth group of people. They are law-obeying, they are doing the right thing, but they're not relying on it to get right with God and stay right with God. These are the Christians who are living in gospel freedom. And he says they're more tolerant than three, those secular people. They're more sympathetic than one. Those people who are the new Pharisees. And they're more confident than two. But he says, most Christians struggle to live out number four and tend to see the world as number one, number two, or even number three. But to to the extent that they do, they are impoverished spiritually. Is that helpful? Come back to that. So that's the first contrast between a a gospel faith um, and a worldly kind of religiosity. But there's a contrast here about good, um, uh, more briefly, between good ministry and bad ministry. And this is really helpful for kind of new elders. Um, See, Paul stayed in Galatia because of an illness. We don't know what it was, but it might have been something to do with his eyes. I kind of did, you know, I looked up pictures kind of like for eye illness or eye infection, but I couldn't bring, them, couldn't bring myself to stick it up on the screen this morning. Um, but it might well have been something to do with his eyes, because he says to them, if you could have done, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. I think that's probably quite a strong hint. And then at the end of the letter, there's, there's an interesting little statement where he says, see what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. So I think... Either he's talking about the whole letter or or he might have kind of dictated the bulk of the letter. And then at the end he writes a little postscript so that they can see it's in in Paul's hand. But when he gets to the end, he's either so excited or possibly his eyes are so bad that he writes with a large hand. So we we don't know any details about how Paul got tied down. But obviously he got tied down in Galatia because he had an illness. And he says to them that you, you didn't treat me with scorn, didn't look down on me. He says, but you welcomed me like, like, I, like I was Christ. And he says some lovely things about the way ministry worked for him. He says he became, he became like them, he says. Don't you notice that? He adapted his way of life to those who were around him. So this is where Nathan comes back into it. If you want to really know Nathan or you wanted to reach into Nathan's group of people, you would need to understand the Marvel Cinematic Universe and or NFL. So if you wanted to reach that group of people, you would have to kind of, you know, you need to know a little bit of NFL. If you want to reach bikers, you'll need to know your camshaft from your wheel bearings or probably something more appropriate. You can tell I'm not a biker. Okay. So this is how elders are going to turn up next week. Okay. <coughs> With the beard. If you want to reach surfers, I think I love, this, I love the concept that there are surfer churches down in, down in Devon. Uh, reaching into a different kind of culture, but I guess you need to know about boards and waves and things like that. But he became like them. It's one of the things Paul does, is that all those things that are secondary he lays aside so he can get to know people and reach them with the gospel. And it just means, just means elders have to know their people and understand them. But also he says not only that he became like them, but he encourages them now to become like him. He lives a life worth copying. It's like parenting, parents, you know that your kids grow up doing what you do, not what you say, you have realised that, I assume by now, and and parenting is a pattern for eldering, people do what you do, not what you say. But ultimately, he's prepared to confront them when he thinks they're making a mistake. And he says here with so poignantly, have I now become your enemy? You welcomed me so gladly you would have given me your eyes. And have I now become your enemy by, by telling you the truth? But another Tim Keller quote says that the gospel frees us from the need of people's approval and adoration so that we can confront and anger the people we love if that's what's best for them. Did you get that? The gospel frees us from the need of people's approval so that we can confront and anger the people we love if that is what is best for them. comes a point where ministry involves speaking the truth in love. And obviously, what Paul sees going on in his churches now is is a wrong kind of ministry. False teachers, they want to win over the Galatians, but, but not for good what they actually want. Those teachers want the Galatians to be zealous for them. You should always see a a warning sign when somebody's gathering a clique. It's always a warning sign, isn't it, when somebody's teaching people so that they gather around them, rather than they gather around Christ. It's not that zeal is wrong, it's just the direction of the zeal. So two contrasts. The third one is whether you're a child of the promise or a child uh, of slavery. We come to this little thing about um, uh, Sarah and Hagar, and it's it's an interesting little example, isn't it? Abraham tried to fulfill God's promise by his own efforts. He got impatient, got fed up with waiting um, for God's promise to arrive, and he tried... um, to fulfill the promise by human means. He should have just waited it out in his relationship with Sarah, and in the goodness of time, he would have had a child miraculously by the promise. But he didn't. He had a a child by, by his own efforts through Hagar, one of his slaves. And Paul says this makes a really good illustration. Did you come to spiritual life? Did you become a child of God? By your own efforts. It's the same argument he made earlier on. Was it by your own efforts? Was it by moral performance? Was it by keeping the law that you became a child of God? Of course it isn't. You became a child of God because you trusted the promise. It's there back in John 1. I can't remember it. Let me look it up. Yeah, to all who received him to those who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God children born not of natural descent nor of human decision nor a husband's will but, but born of God how did you get born of God? you were born of God because you trusted a promise you trusted the same promise that Abraham trusted so you are a child of Sarah like Isaac you're not a child of Hagar you're not a a, a, an Ishmael. And the danger is that now the Ishmaels and the Isaacs are always at odds with one another and it continues to be the fact even, even until this day, doesn't it? That the Isaacs, those who have children of promise, are always kind of fighting against the Ishmaels, those who are trusting in, in, in law, whether it's the law of Moses or it's the law of other religions. And as children of the promise, you have to carry on living the Christian life by trusting the promise. And sometimes the promise, the, the secondary part of that promise that God will change us to be, to be more like Christ, sometimes that comes so slowly. And we are required to keep in step um, with the Spirit, but some days we kind of find that too hard and we, we think, I'll just have a few little laws and I'll keep my few little laws... Paul says, don't be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So you're a child of the promise. So walk in this personal relationship that God's given you, confident in the promises of God, and don't go back to a yoke of slavery. But what I want you to do is then just pause for a moment. How do I know how I'm doing? I think you have a little look again at those. Just... um, Give you a, a couple of moments, and then we'll get um, musicians back up. But which of those describes you? Law obeying, law relying, people who think you get right and stay right with God by relying on the law. Either people who feel that they're doing it they become new Pharisees, people who feel they don't do it have a guilty a guilty conscience. Or people who are not relying on the law but then are not really bothering to do anything about it and are just creating their own little vague um, spirituality. Or people who are not relying on the law to get right with God but they're doing it. They're doing it out of love. They're doing it because they want to be like their heavenly father. Which of those is you?